Welcome to Flex Perspectives, where I interview the thought leaders, innovators, and executives shaping the future of flexible work. Flex Perspectives is brought to you by the Flex Index, the world's most robust source for full-time, hybrid, and remote work requirements. The Flex Index represents more than 4,000 companies, 25,000 office locations, and 100 million people. It's a great place to start if you're looking for your next flexible work career opportunity. Today, my guests are Carly Zakin and Danielle Weisberg, co-founders of The Skim. Started in 2012, The Skim is a media company dedicated to succinctly giving women the information they need to make confident decisions. In true Skim fashion, we're going to succinctly dive into three important topics. First, The Skim just put out an eye-opening and sobering report on the state of women. We'll talk about the most important findings. Second, the report found that 84% of women have or are looking to set up a more flexible working schedule. We'll talk about why flexible work is in such high demand. And lastly, we'll get into actionable recommendations to better support women based on the report's finding. I'm so excited to have Carly Zakin and Danielle Weisberg on the podcast. Carly and Danielle are the founders of The Skim, an incredibly important media company dedicated to succinctly giving women the information they need to make confident decisions. Carly and Danielle, welcome. Hi, this is so exciting. Thanks so much for having us. We're excited to uh, get into it today with you. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for being here. Carly, you and Danielle launched The Skim over 10 years ago now. So tell me a little bit about how The Skim gets started, who the audience is, and maybe a little bit about what the scale of The Skim is today. Sure. Um, so as you said, we started The Skim a little over 10 years ago. Um, Danielle and I are, are longtime friends and both had worked, come up and worked in news um, on the production side. And you know, after college, I would say we noticed how constantly our friends who are super smart and, and really well-educated and were on tracks with, with great careers were coming to us and saying, tell me what happened today. Just fill me in. And they were coming to us with that kind of problem and prompt because traditional outlets were not reaching them where they were. We're not talking to them and a voice that resonated. And honestly, like, they were really busy, just like we all are. And when Danielle and I would kind of exchange stories around that and, and sort of took a, a wider look at the the macro landscape at the time, you know, it, it's quaint to think about it now. But at the time, we were like, wow, news is at the peak of being noisy. We're like, Twitter has never been noisier and cable news has never been noisier. And, you know, little did we know it was probably the quiet time. But at the time, we were like, there's just, um, we need to figure out a way to clear the noise. And when we really tapped into what did our friends represent, it was really the, de the generation of millennial women. And, you know, today that kind of word millennial is very overused. At the time, it was not. And what this generation represents is something um, that really the, the world's never seen before. Never have you had a generation that has so much power so much going for her. She's the key voting block. She's actually entering the C-suite. She is influencing three and a half trillion dollars in spending. She is making all financial decisions in her household, but she is drowning. She is still fighting to close the page, uh, the wage equity gap. She is still fighting for paid family leave. She is still fighting for the seat at the table. And there was such a discrepancy around how companies were were reaching her, and we knew we could do it in a really authentic way. So we started um, with a daily newsletter called The Daily Skim. 
now it is expanded into really an ecosystem that lives across many platforms. We reach over 12 million of her across all of our platforms. We have five different newsletters that touch on everything from news to her money to her um, purchasing decisions. We have a B2B marketing newsletter, marketer's newsletter, podcast, an app, a video studio, um, and actually just launched an in-house creative agency called SKM Lab. So excited to kind of share all of that with you today. It's awesome. It's a whole media empire at this point. And I, I wish things <laughs> yes. were as quiet as they were 10 years ago, you know, in retrospect, right? You were talking a little bit about the state of women and what's happening across generations, but also at millennials specifically. You just launched the State of Women report. And Danielle, can you tell me a little bit more about what is the State of Women campaign and why did it feel so important to take on this initiative? Sure. Well, as Carlene went through, the skim on the state of women is that it's not good. Um, that's that's the headline. And I think for years we had heard anecdotally from our audience on what was going on, pressure building in certain areas of their life, despite having a lot of these kind of generational advantages that we were poised to take advantage of and really step into. And I think these last few years of the pandemic which we know adversely affected women, uh, especially women of color, has wiped away decades of progress towards gender equality. We knew it was bad, but we didn't know uh, it was this bad. Um, and where we really dug into that and, and found, found out what was really going on from a data perspective is through our State of Women campaign and our corresponding report. So we teamed up with Harris to poll and survey a ton of women and launched our State of Women campaign, which is data-driven, action-oriented. It focuses not on the fact, not only on the fact that women are in crisis, um, which we've all felt in different ways for the past few years, that's not a surprise, but really on what we can do and are doing to change the status quo. Um, our goal with the campaign was to make it known. I feel like anything in our society that we can kind of like shove aside or pretend not to see, we do. And I think especially with how much women are taking on in their various roles um, at work, as caregivers, as uh, partners, as mothers, as heading up the household, there's just so much. And we know that the systems in place were never designed to support women um, in this equal playing field. Women have been shouting about this for years, um, and it hasn't gone anywhere. So we felt like it was the right time to take a look at how women are feeling and doing just on their own, not in comparison to other audiences, um, not in comparison to other generations, but just in this moment of such unprecedented uh, challenges. And that's what we did. And, and I think that what we want to be the takeaway is you see the issue, um, you get involved. Either that means you are a woman that's feeling this and you're seeing what other people are going through, or you're going to be someone that's going to pitch in and help. Um, but really, we're, we're making it clear and transparent what is going on. And then finally, to understand that underlying this is a really huge economic risk. We're talking about a $3.1 trillion at risk to the U.S. economy if we don't figure out how to keep and better support women in the workforce. One of the things I found really interesting and, and pretty eye-opening, honestly, was the, the research and the statistics specifically around unpaid labor and mental <laughs> load and how women are asked to take on more than men in that regard. 
what did you think about that? And tell me a little bit about what that, what those topics, unpaid labor and mental load mean to you specifically. Oh my goodness. Well, I think if you talk to, you know, any woman, she will kind of nod and smile knowingly when you talk about kind of the the unpaid labor. I think especially if you talk to those who, um, you know, have children and are juggling, you know, multiple responsibilities, they're there is a kind of knowing sigh that uh, I think that they all share. And to me, you know, what was actually the most sobering statistic, which at first when we saw this one, we almost like laughed. It felt almost funny until we actually like really thought about what it meant, which was that 71% of millennial women say it is their job to be the chief worry officer. Now, we joke like we love to see women in the C-suite. Only 5% of C-suite is made up of women. But this is not what we had in mind. And I think, you know, when we talk about 76% of her agree that women are largely responsible for the unpaid labor and mental load at home, like, what does that really mean? It means that there are so many unspoken things that she is thinking about doing, taking care of in the home, um, in addition to all of her other responsibilities, whether, you know, raising a family and or, you know, having a career. And and then, you know, when you look at some of the other stats that we uncovered that what is the number one thing on her mind right now? It's mental health. And, you know, we're talking to you today, three years coming out of the pandemic, um, one in five of her are saying that she has experienced a mental health condition like depression or anxiety. That is really alarming. Like that is a moment that we as like a society need to like take stock of like, what are we saying? It means like you take five of us in a room, one of us is actively dealing with a mental health crisis. And 76% of us are like, yeah, I do all this unpaid shit at home. Sorry, I hope I can curse. Uh, And, you know, the fact that she's saying chief worry officer, I mean, what you're describing is literally saying my job is to be stressed. Now, you don't have to be a a doctor to know that that is... um, that is really not a healthy existence. And the fact that then she is trying to combat societal structures or corporate structures that are not actually created to help her, but in many cases make that stress compounded is really alarming and where society is failing her. It strikes me that as I as I hear it and you know, the data is so overwhelming, the 76% number that you gave. I think there was another one on 82% of millennial women talk about how, how overburdened women are, but no one's actually helping them ease the burden. Uh, the idea of how do you pursue a career and also a fulfilling life at home, be able to balance those things when it feels like the playing field is so unequal. To me, that was just, that was pretty staggering to think about. For sure. And I think, you know, generationally, it's it's really interesting too, because of, you know, I think uh, millennials are a unique generation given there are so many of them. And so we always knew we were going to make up the bulk of the workforce. Um, I think what is so different about this is that we thought we were going to be poised to really take advantage of being more educated than our our parents um, and that that would, you know, show up in our earning power. And we just haven't really been able to see that. So I think so much of this is, um, I think, enlightening for a lot of people who don't understand why you know, you may not want to have a family. You may not want to have kids. It's so expensive. And there's already a ton of pressure for an audience that is going to be taking care of their parents and their kids at the same time. Um, So I think that 
the way that I've looked at it and a way that I think a lot of other people have seen it is, wow, you know, that stat is surprising or that stat is alarming. And then when you take a step back, I think, unfortunately, it really makes sense, right? That 20% of, of women are thinking like, maybe I actually, you know, don't want to be a parent. Maybe that's not something that I, I can afford, or maybe that's not a stressor that, that I want to add into my life. Um, and I think all of it really works to paint the full picture of what is going on for, for women. Yeah, I, I thought it was really interesting in that context that you just shared, Danielle, some of the interest in flexible and hybrid work um, within mm-hmm. the, the survey. And I, I think if I recall the statistic correctly, it was 84% of women are either in or looking for more flexible or hybrid work schedule. Uh, that's a huge percentage. You know, why, why do you think that is, you know, in the context of some of the, the data points you were just talking about? You know, I think it's interesting that we went from having a society that it, it and, and by the way, the skin was totally part of this pre-COVID, right? Like we thought it's like, you know, you build a place that people want to show up to every single day. And a lot of the way that we defined culture was how we worked together. And that together meant like actually in the same place. Um, and when I think back on it, that was so incredibly difficult for any working parent Think about, you know, how uh, even school hours or doctor appointments hours, all of these things are are not set up to support two working parents. And yet when you look at um, our economy, you really need to have two working parents to be able to afford raising kids and, and supporting a family, especially with the dependents that we've talked about. So it's not a surprise that people were struggling prior to the the pandemic. It's just there wasn't necessarily an answer. And then I think as a society, we all went through this at once. And, you know, from that period in time too, men were home as well, obviously. And so they took on more in that period, more uh, sharing in, in caregiving and in, in household responsibilities, whatever that meant. And then coming out of it, it's not like anyone was jumping for joy to go back into how things were, right? Um, Obviously, people are excited for normalcy, but it was also the opportunity to say, hey, the idea that I can, you know, figure out how to have a schedule that doesn't take up a a huge chunk of my time commuting is a great way to promote efficiency. Um, I think that also combined with the idea that there was for a long time kind of this employee market, right? Um, We saw wages were going up. There was a lot of competition to create different workforces that worked specifically for employees to keep them there. It, It all went to this idea that People's lives aren't necessarily mimicking uh, what the societal kind of schedules like were pandemic. And and there's no real reason to be able to return to that when it didn't work in the first place. I remember it specifically even for Jess, my wife, who Carly knows very well. And pre-pandemic, I think about her experience. And she was commuting to a company from San Francisco in Silicon Valley, taking the bus two or three hours each day, and just thinking about how that stacked up and impacted life, you know, compared to, you know, what it is today and the level of flexibility. I think, I mean, I think that's the key, which is it's flexibility. Like we, you know, as both employees of the skim and as CEOs of the skim, like 
in-person is really important. There is such value in, in being able to collaborate in a room with people and like have that physical, you know, experience, right? Together. But the flexibility is what is so important. And I think what, you know, we shouldn't see is as awful as sort of the pandemic, you know, has had been and, and you know, was for, for so many of us trying to do so many different things at once, let alone take care of our health. Um, there were some positive things in in the workplace. And obviously you're, you're the first one to kind of see that and that opportunity. But some of the positives was that sharing of that unpaid and unseen labor and see, and for employers to sort of see, and, you know, we're included in that to see the benefits of what, how can you do what you normally do at home? And I think what scares us is when, and what has scared women, and again, go back to that stat, 84% of her are looking for some sort of flexibility when it comes to the workplace. When companies are like, everyone back in the office, five days a week, nine to five, like we're checking you Friday afternoon at five o'clock. That's, that is basically saying, you know, it's basically putting up a giant middle finger to anybody that is like, I want to be here, but I need some flexibility. And the people that are saying that are largely women. So you can't be a company that says, I care about having more women in the C-suite. I care about developing our fe- our senior female talent. And then also say, well, we won't have any flexibility. There's, you just can't have those two, two things exist in the same space. Yeah, that's really powerful and well said. I- Curious, do you think it is the work location flexibility in terms of how much time you spend in the office versus out? Is it the hours flexibility in terms of being able to be on and offline at different times to be outside? Is, you know, I'll, I'll answer as an employer and then Danielle, you know, you have two little ones yeah. so you can answer from personal experience. And I think that, I think it's both. You know, I, when I look back like pre-pandemic as us as, you know, employers, there are so many times I didn't think twice about, you know, being like, oh, let's get so-and-so and let's talk at five o'clock. And I didn't think they had to catch a train or a bus or whatever it was to get home. And by me scheduling a five o'clock meeting last minute, they probably missed dinner time with their kids or maybe didn't get to pick them up off the bus. And as an employer, like I didn't have that awareness. Today, I think I we very much have that awareness. So I think it is it is both. It is the time and it is the the physical location. But Danielle, obviously, experience. You know, I think yeah. So I've had um two my two little pandemic babies, <laughs> um, and uh, so I became a parent in this very very weird moment in time, um, and I think that. What is interesting is I feel like I can answer for myself, but I can't necessarily answer for others. Um, and I think that's a huge thing that that I've learned because so much of it is, yes, I love the flexibility of um, being able to be home and feeling like I get to see my kids at this really, really young stage that I know a lot of people miss out on and and really feel that. And in the other way, I'm like, I want to go to the office. Like, I need to get out of the house. I want to have a place where, like, I get to be my professional identity and self. And that is also really, really important to me to separate. Um, and I know a lot of parents who who feel that way as well. I also think, you know, something that is going to come up more and more as well on location flexibility is going to be about aging parents as our parents get older and how that affects where you're working. And I think having uh, time flexibility, you know, with obviously some constraints. And I think this is the part that's that's really difficult for any sort of employer out there is 
you don't want to have to balance like 10 different work schedules, right? Um, so I, I think to the degree that you can offer flexibility per teams and, the, and that person is still getting their work done, but they're doing it on on a different hour and it's not affecting the team, like do it. I think that's great. And so I do feel like there's a lot more spotlight on individuals instead of necessarily kind of like a group way of doing something. I, I even saw it personally, Dania, I don't think we've talked about this, but I have a 20 month old and so I've got one pandemic baby, well, not two. Um, yes. And, but I saw it firsthand even in terms of how it changes for the same person over the course of time, yeah. right? Watching Jess come back from parental leave and the importance of flexibility in that time and how different that must have been for parents even five years ago, you know, that was dramatic. And I know family leave is a topic uh, that's that's pretty near and dear to, to both you as well. Yeah, paid family leave is something um, we've gotten really loud about as a company through the, over the last year and change, year and a half. Um, we launched an initiative called Show Us Your Leave after Build Back Better uh, Bill last year basically showed us they weren't going to prioritize a national leave policy that was acceptable. And it began as a viral movement, honestly, um, of, of women across the, the country sharing what their leave looked like while trying to make it work. And I mean, the pictures you could it, it was we knew it was bad we didn't know how bad it was i mean the two that stand out in my mind there was one woman who shared with us a picture of herself in the hospital in active labor with her laptop on the contraction monitor trying to get her emails in by midnight because at midnight she would qualify for some sort of leave from her employer the second that like just i still think about it was a nicu nurse who at a hospital she only had 10 days of paid leave so she had a child, she had to go back 10 days, like, so no recovery time or, you know, ability to even like be with her child and then help parents care for their children. Um, and just, you know, the irony of that, you know, especially, you know, I would call out, you know, both in the medical and education field, the, the stories in particular were especially um, just horrifying. And so those stories kind of took on a movement and life of their own. And then that really turned into a call for companies to basically say, we will show us your leave. We'll show us show you what um, leave looks like at this company. And so we actually created ended up creating a database, which you can find on our website. Um, that you know now over six hundred and fifty companies have not only shared, but in many cases changed what their policies were to be competitive. And so that when you are looking for a job, like you can come to our website and actually see what the benefits and policies are. And you know, it's really a matter of how our company is supporting you as an employee during life. And life is going to have highest of highs, like expanding your family and maybe, you know, getting married or whatever it is. And the lowest of lows, like maybe a pregnancy loss or maybe the death of a parent. And how is your how is a company showing up for their employees, I think is really the the message here. And, you know, I go back again to what do we learn from our, our survey, from talking to our audience, over 83% of her have said that she has no confidence that the government is going to help solve the paid leave crisis. So what does that tell us? It tells us that it's up to companies to, to actually create the change. It also, then it makes a lot of sense, 65%, over 65% of our audience says that they are interested in exploring political office, which I thought was honestly one of the most uplifting parts of, of this this whole survey, which is, She's creating the change herself. And I think like that's what we really want to get through, you know, and and when we talk about state of women, like a lot of this is very sobering and, you know, depressing. 
But I think what's amazing about this generation is like, she's like, you know what? Nobody is solving this for me. So I'm going to solve it for myself and for future generations. And so I thought that the political interest that she was expressing was really great to see. Yeah, it, 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 it appears it's like they're not, people are not stepping back, right? Like women are not stepping back from it. And they're saying, look, I can be the, I can be a change agent, which is really inspiring and empowering. Do you think if you think about the cross, the different pieces of flexibility we talked about, so work location, hours, parental leave, will this start to move the needle if companies start to adopt at scale in terms of creating some of these opportunities? Like how much how much of an impact do we think this can actually have? I mean, I think it could have a, a huge impact. I think that, you know, when people are looking, especially in competitive job markets, right? When people are looking at companies I think that there's been a real switch on kind of what are the shiny things. And especially when you offer uh, location flexibility, those things kind of go away in a sense. And I think that culture is defined and, and will continue to be defined um, on what are the actual policies. And a lot of that is what we are actually talking about here. It's kind of the meat of how a company is going to support you. And those are the things that I really want companies to be like yelling about and competing about. Like, I would love for it to be, you know, there. there's as much of a competition on, uh, you know, whose paid family leave is better as there are kind of like on bonus structures. Um, and I know that sounds a, a bit ridiculous, but I think that that is in, in some ways as important on like, what are the options that you're going to offer for helping families, whether that is, you know, wanting to start a family and grow a family or, you know, on the other end of, of aging parents. And I think also what's, what's really interesting kind of as I'm saying this too fits with why we're seeing women take, take more of, um, considering more on uh, the political bent is that these are some things that I think we've we've kind of always thought government would figure out um, and they're just not. And that's not a democratic thing. That's not a Republican thing. It's that we are a huge demographic, right? Millennials are, there's like a ton of us and we've inherited a lot of debt and uh, we kind of thought these things would be figured out. Um, and instead, like we're at the crux of systems that just don't make sense. Um, so I think even moving the needle on on one of these things from from a systemic standpoint, and if we can't have that as like a nice thing from a kind of just a business norm standpoint can have huge impacts to not only the mental stress, stress and, and health um, that we're seeing impacted, but I think, you know, to our GDP to making sure that we are having um, a workforce that is strong, that we're continuing to have kids and that we can actually retire. Um, and I think all of those things play, all of those pieces that we talked about, each one of those policies plays a role in being able to have that. So let's talk a little bit about that and those actions that uh, people, companies can take tomorrow you know, to start to create a better future or maybe next time the state of women report comes out that it looks a little brighter than the one that that just came out. Uh, let's start with women listening. You know, if there's a, a single message or takeaway that you want to deliver, you know, what's the most important thing here? I think that it's, we know it's not fair, but like we're creating the change ourselves and you're a part of it. And so I think, you know, there's so many examples from from our community where, you know, we have a woman in Queens who she was like, I'm going to use workplace software to help delegate household tasks. 
because I'm tired of being the one to do all this unpaid labor. Um, we have a, a woman, um, Laura in New Hampshire, who like very simply just stopped saying yes to every request, which really shocked her family, but it's actually made for a much healthier version of herself. So I think, you know, for women, it's about championing the changes that we are actually creating ourselves. And, you know, in the at the very, you know, beginning step, it's like, you know, even on our website, we have the template of how you should go kind of go to the higher ups at your company to ask for um, a more aggressive paid leave policy. And I can't tell you how many hundreds of thousands of stories and anecdotes we've gotten from people saying they're making changes now where we're having the conversation. And so again, while it's not fair, we are creating the change and it is going to happen. That's awesome. Uh, so for men that are listening yeah. and want to be more supportive of the women in their lives, what are a few things that men should be thinking about maybe differently tomorrow than you know, the way they've behaved today or in the past? I, I, I mean, I think it's a, a, <laughs> yeah, I think it's a twofold strategy, right? So there, there's two steps. I think the first is um, like get in the game. So uh, I love what Eve Brodsky, uh, the work she's done around fair play. There's a book, there's a documentary, there's even like a card game. So pick which one you want to do with your partner. And um, I, I think it's really understanding, like taking a minute to see what is really going on. And I, I think that you know, it's easy for everyone in their day to day to get hung up on like, well, you know, yeah, I did this or you did that. And um, it's much more about taking a much wider look at the data around gender roles. And I think that that's what, you know, we've done with this survey. I think it's a lot of what Eve Rodsky, the fantastic work that she's done as well. So I think understand what the situation is, understand that things are not fair, it's not an equal playing field, and kind of take a minute to accept that and then um, call it out. So I think it's like understand it and then call it out. And that means making sure that you are taking your leave when you're having a family, uh, when when you're adding to your family, or making sure that, you know, when things are not good, that you're also in the mix and in whatever care dynamic that is. I think it's also advocating for these policies of flexibility in your work uh, environment as well, because the more that you're able to to call it out, I think it's also all of this is is helpful to really make sure that that men are viewed as true partners, that there is a lot of equality. And, and I think that we first have to make everyone aware of the problem. Um, and then we need people to, to step in and help. And I think, luckily, it's pretty clear the areas that voicing support can go a long way. I think that point on men taking leave is such an important point. <laughs> and you really realize over time how much the employees at a company will follow what executives do or don't do, not by the words they say necessarily, but by the actions they do or don't take. And if male executives at companies don't take leave, the likelihood that others will take leave or that women will feel like it's even in that sense, um, you know, significantly decreases. So I think that point is such an important one. Uh, let, let's continue a little bit more on the company context. Uh, for for managers of women, thinking about some of the things we've just talked about in the experience in the workplace, what should maybe managers be thinking about in terms of uh, being more supportive or enabling women to have equal outcomes in their careers to to men in their companies or in their careers? I mean, I think step one, you know, it seems basic, but it, 
many of us need to be reminded of it, and I think ourselves included, of um, listen. Listen to what your employee needs. What is the flexibility she needs to, to do to get her job done and to show up in the best way possible? Are there areas um, of development and learning that you as a, as a manager or as a company can help coach or, or support her in? What are behaviors that you see she exhibits in meetings that might hold her back? Um, or where is she getting silenced in a meeting? And, and how do you create the space for that not to happen? And I think, you know, it's especially true for, for women of color. But, you know, I think these are these are all different ways that really have an accumulative effect of how do you best support not just um, the women who, you know, are in your workplace, but actually keeping them in your workplace and getting them to that next level. And what about for you know, executives or, or, or maybe written more broadly for folks that are thinking about anything from company culture to policy, uh, anything else on the policy or practice side? Uh, we talked about leave, but uh, leave or otherwise. Yeah. Well, I think that the idea of, um, and I don't think this is easy, right? And, I, and, and so I don't mean to say that uh, it is. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of this is falling on on companies to come up with what this future is going to look like because we're not seeing it. We're not getting that guidance from uh, kind of government being able to move quickly enough to support this next generation or this generation of uh, the people that make up the workforce. Um, so I think that, you know, if in the past, kind of the social contract that you had between like a worker and the government and and the company you worked for was like, if you're working for X amount of years, you're going to retire with this package. And, you know, you'll put in this and you'll get a pension um, or Social Security will definitely be there. Like, don't worry. I, I don't want to be too negative, but I think overall, like those are those are not things that we necessarily take uh, for granted anymore at all. Um, so I think it's more about being able to look at this, who this worker actually is and what they need, right? So obviously everyone wants to retire, but like what age is that actually going to happen at? And how many jobs are you going to have before that? And those numbers are drastically different than, you know, boomers or, or even Gen X. And I think that that's where you're able to kind of like rethink the policies where it might be paying off student debt um, could be a priority in your workforce ahead of coming up with a 401k. And maybe that's obviously that that got, could obviously be completely the wrong thing, depending on your workforce. But I guess I'm saying there isn't because of, of how different this generation is. There is not a the one size fits all that's that's been given to us as kind of like this standard policy of what you should offer, I, I don't think works. Yeah, it sounds like there's some fresh thinking that's required regardless, yes. right, in terms of what's going to be most helpful. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else in terms of takeaways or action items that we haven't touched on that you think are important to spend a moment on? I feel like we did touch on all of them. The only thing I would just emphasize is that... Um, this change only happens and the state of women only changes if we really do have our, our male peers and counterparts understand the significance and, and step up. And, and I think um, I just don't want to underestimate that. I think for me, it's just it's it's an economic issue. Um, I think people get lost and and where a lot of this comes comes down to to kind of different factions and arguments is on making it 
um, like a, a gender clash. And instead of thinking about it that way, it's about, you know, we want a strong economy. And this is a huge part of how we can get there. I, I really appreciate the work that you've both done and this skim is done broadly on this topic because I think you've put out a report that's very easy to digest and the numbers make it really clear to understand kind of like the state of play today and where some of those issues are. And I truly believe that understanding what's happening clearly is a first step towards solving anything, right? So I appreciate all of the work and leadership that you both put into that. Thank um, you. Thank you. Of course. Uh, well, we always, before we finish up, I always ask a few kind of like rapid fire type questions just so folks Yay. who are listening can get to know you a little bit better as, as people and individuals beyond the topics we cover. So if you don't mind, I'll throw out a few things to you. You can both answer or one can answer whatever Great. you prefer. All right. Uh, first question. What was your first job? Babysitter. Babysitter, mother's helper. Babysitter. Got it. Okay. Uh, best book you've read lately? Oh, I'm excited to answer this. Um, it's a new book about to come out, actually written by one of our very first Skim employees. Uh, That's it's so called cool. Social Engagement, and it's by Avery Carpenter Forey, and it is excellent. Oh, Same. Awesome. We're very proud of Avery. That's awesome. Uh, when you do meetings with video conference, are you typically video on or video off? It depends the time of the day. Yeah. <laughs> I'll say uh, there's just at some point in the day, I'm like, I don't want to see myself anymore. I don't want to see you like I'm here to to get it done. And I, I don't want to interact. <laughs> yeah, I would. I would echo that. I feel the same way, especially as the weather yeah. gets nicer. I could do yeah. walking yeah, meetings and things like exactly. that, too, is nice. Uh, a show or movie that you're obsessed with right now? Um, succession. I so succession, but also I just started beef, um, and I really like it. I saw there's a New York Times article I think written about yeah, like how everyone's it's really maybe good. it's a journal. I'm only in episode three, but I'm I'm into it. Oh, actually, I changed my answer. Love is blind. I uh, got it. Uh, favorite snack when you're in the office? For me, it's chocolate, like Hershey Kiss, uh, Hershey Bar, like chocolate. Hershey sponsors should sponsor me, <laughs> like. <laughs> um, I'm really boring with my snacks. I like just have peanut butter all the time. And, but we have a bevy machine and I know water is not a snack and should no. not be categorized, but after, no, but it, the novelty of being able to like choose my carbonation level and what flavoring I don't do, I don't have that at home. Like that's, that's amazing. Favorite piece of flexible work software. I honestly, I, it's a love hate, but Zoom, ring light. Nope. It's not a software. It's hardware, but I feel like it's it's necessary. And what is ring light? You know, it's like the the light that you put on. Rob definitely does not know. I do not know. <laughs> it's a, it's the light that just makes it really filters you for when yeah. you're on camera. Ah, got we it. We did not it. use it today. Yeah. Now I'm going to furiously search for ring light afterward for <laughs> yep. next time. Yeah, ask uh, away. <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, what is uh, one future of work or flexible work thinker or speaker writer that you really respect? I actually really always go back to Adam Grant. I think Adam Grant, um, I really like leaned on him for managerial advice. And I think he's been really helpful in understanding um, kind of these adapting work cultures. And, you know, I feel like, I don't know anybody that doesn't look to him for advice, but I, but I truly do. 
I said Eve Rodsky, and I would totally echo that. Uh, I also think that we have a fantastic chief people officer, Lisa Dallenbach, and she's uh, just helped us navigate so much over over the past few years. So I feel really grateful um, to have her on our team. It's hard to overstate the importance of having yeah. a, a great chief people officer. Uh, and then one final question for you. Uh, where should listeners go if they want to read more, or learn more about any of the topics that we've that we've covered today? Theskim.com slash state of women. Awesome. Well, thank you both so much. I really appreciate it. It's always thank a pleasure you. to be able to catch up. Thank you. I really appreciate it. It's so nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too, Danielle and Carly. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you can subscribe on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Please also consider giving us a rating or leaving a review as that helps other listeners find the podcast. For more Flex Index content, including past episodes, our Flex Index newsletter, and monthly research reports, visit flex.scoopforwork.com. See you next time.